Hey, good morning. Well, to you who are not traveling on this holiday weekend, we have a treat for you. Jesus teaching on hypocrisy. So, congrats. Uh, as he said, we were in the, the series on the Gospel of Luke, uh, not Luke, Luke, um, looking at the life and the teaching and ministry of Jesus. Last week, we were in chapter 6, and we said that uh, we were looking at a, at a passage that was part of a larger sermon that Jesus preached. The thrust of the text we looked at last week uh, was that he wanted his people to be marked by love, love for those hardest in our lives to love, love for our enemies, and that we would treat others the way that we want to be treated. This was the ethical foundation of the people of Jesus. This week, we are continuing in that same sermon, looking at this passage, this part of that sermon that builds to a declarative statement by Jesus. The declarative statement is this, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. Now, you don't need to know a single thing about Christianity to know that if Jesus is calling you a hypocrite, it's not a compliment. It's not a good thing. When we use the word hypocrite, uh, we, we say things like this. Oh, man, that, that church over there, they are just so full of hypocrites, man. They're just, thank God I'm not one of them, but they are just full of hypocrites. I thought that was funnier than that, so maybe it's too close to home for us. I don't know. We say things like, at work, this person acts pretty different when the boss is around. I just don't know that I can trust them. When we use the word hypocrite, what we mean is that there is an inconsistency in this person's life. There's a dichotomy. Their life and their speech don't line up, or they act one way around this group and another way around that group. Um, in Jesus' day, when he used the word, it, it included, encompassed all of that, but it meant uh, even more. See, the word hypocrite is literally a Greek word brought straight into English, and it was the word for actor. Uh, it was the word for uh, actor. And so it doesn't mean like somebody who would act like something, but literally a professional actor. And so to understand what Jesus is really saying when he says, you hypocrite, we need to know something about first century actors. In these days, in Jesus' days, actors would wear a mask. You've probably seen it. You may not have recognized what it was. I probably should have put a picture up behind. Uh, but it would be that, that, that mask that looked like this and went down and have a smile or a frown. The point was that if you were playing a happy role, you wore a mask with a smile on it. If you were playing a sad role, you, you wore a mask with a frown on it. And here's the thing. It, it did not matter what was happening in the actor's life. How the actor actually felt on the inside was irrelevant to the part that they played. They could be miserably depressed, crying all day long, but the minute they put that mask on with a smile, they were expected to look and exude happiness. They were to be believable. The audience was expected to see this actor who for 23 hours was in misery looking happy talking happy, walking happy, their body language had to match the mask that was on the outside, and vice versa. Your life could be going as good as it's ever going to go, but if you put a mask with a frown on, you were expected to be believable as a sad and miserable character. You were expected to be believable. This is what acting is. And so when Jesus says, you hypocrites, when Jesus says, you hypocrite, he is saying, you who go through life with a mask on. You who have a script that you are living by. 
You who are miserable on the inside, but you've got the smile on your mask. You, actor, you are playing a part and you know it. That's what Jesus is saying. Weighty words from Jesus. You, actor, you who are playing a part. Now, here's the reality. There is a propensity in all of us to wear a mask, to play a part, to present one way when on the inside we're really not that way at all. And I'm not saying that there is a propensity to a complete mask on all of us. It's not like there's this massive facade on every one of us and you say your name is Joe, but it's really Tim or something. Like That's not what I'm talking about. But there's pieces of a mask in front of all of us, is there not? If you say, no, that's not me, that's them, then we're going to talk to you in a minute. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at our text, the text we're in, the portion of Jesus' sermon, in light of where he finishes, in light of his statement, you hypocrite. And we're going to look at it under three headings. The posture of hypocrisy, the effect of hypocrisy, and the root of hypocrisy. Posture, effect, root. With each, we're going to drill a little deeper into the core of what we are talking about. And in the end, we're going to be left with a choice, a question for all of us, but we'll get to that. So let's start the posture of hypocrisy, verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Okay, let's pause there. Remember last week, we, uh, we, we, we said, again, we said we were in the middle of a larger sermon that Jesus preached, and last week we finished with verse 36, and this week we're beginning with verse 36. And the, the reason for that is this verse serves a bit as a transitional statement for Jesus. Transitional statements uh, take where you've been and they bridge you to where you're going. And so they take what came before and inform what's coming next. And so, as a reminder, as a reminder, this is what he said. Here's what I want my people to do. I want you to treat others the way that you want to be treated. I want you to treat others the way you want to be treated. I want you to love even those that are the hardest in your life to love. Those you would deem an enemy, I want you to love them. And if you do that, if you do that, you will be taking the mercy of the Father and extending it on earth. You will be taking the harmony and the rhythm and the shalom of heaven, and you'll be living it on earth. You'll be living my prayer in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, with love your enemies, treat others the way that you want to be treated in the background, Jesus goes on. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. So I need to say right off, right up front, that these verses right here that I just read are some of the most misused, misapplied verses in the New Testament, and I, I think they are misused, misapplied for at least two reasons. Um, reason one, one commentator put it this way. He said, these verses uh, are the Magna Carta of American religion. The Magna Carta of American religion, because in America, judging someone is the most heinous offense we can cause. So we've all heard this, we've all said, which is, by the way, incredibly incredibly isolated to a particular culture. There are plenty of cultures out there uh, where judgment is considered a civic good. It's how we protect one another, right? It's an incredibly narrow cultural perspective. But we've all heard it. We've all heard this. Don't, don't judge me. Don't judge me. 
can't judge me. The Bible says don't judge lest you be judged. You want God to judge you? Go ahead and judge me. Right? We've heard that. We've said that probably. Or two, how many West Wing fans in the room? West Wing, the TV show? No, not that many. This is depressing right now. I am not the pastor I thought I was. So West Wing, uh, you should watch seasons one through four, five through seven, not, not so much. Uh, but in the, there's a scene in West Wing uh, where uh, somebody who works in the White House is being questioned by their attorney, the, the White House counsel. And the White House counsel is asking questions, and then the person being questioned would just kind of ramble on and on and on, and the attorney says, stop, I need you to stop right there. Stop, stop saying more than I'm asking. I... Stop saying more than I'm asking. So the second reason that, that it gets misused is we want to pull it out often and just make it say a lot more than it's actually saying. We want to kind of ramble on with it and create meaning that's not there. So we need to ask the question, does the Bible prohibit all judgments? Is that what's happening right here? The answer, the short answer is no, that there are places in the Scriptures where um, Christians are commanded to judge, specifically one another. We're commanded to judge. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, there's this serious sin happening inside the church, uh, and the author, Paul is his name, is writing this letter and says, what are, you, what are you doing not judging them? Are you kidding me? God will judge what's outside. You are to judge this person. You are not to sit idly by while they're doing what they're doing. So the Bible is not giving an absolute prohibition on judgment. What's What's happening here? Well, uh, in this uh, couple of verses, there are four imperatives and a promise. An imperative is a do this. You must do this. There's four imperatives and one promise, and I'm leaning heavily on uh, Daryl Bach, who is one of the world's foremost scholars in the Gospel of Luke, who makes the case that, that these four, prom- four, four imperatives and one promise are meant to be taken together. Point being, Jesus is not making five separate points. He's making one point. What Jesus is doing is he's putting flesh on, treat others as you would want to be treated. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And Bach says it like this. He summarizes um, this set of verses by saying this. The idea that a judgmental attitude toward others. I need to pause there. The, The word others in context here, he's talking about outsiders, those who don't believe as you do. So the idea that a judgmental attitude toward others or outsiders is that, it never seeks to encourage them toward God. What is commanded is an attitude that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. What is prohibited is an arrogance that reacts with hostility toward the immoral, viewing such people as beyond God's reach. See, what it's not saying is this. If you forgive, if you're just a generally forgiving person, God will then, therefore, forgive you. It's not saying that if you give money away if you are generous, God will therefore give you back tenfold the cash you gave away. This is not subtle prosperity gospel being taught here by Jesus. It is Jesus forming a cultural ethic. It is Jesus saying, because you have the Father's mercy, go and extend it. Because you have the Father's mercy, be merciful. Extend His mercy. It is saying, I want my people, my community, my followers to be marked by a few things. One of them is never, never seeing anyone beyond God's reach. Never looking at someone else's life and saying they are simply irredeemable. You don't think they're irredeemable? Look at what they did. That, that is 
arrogant. That is to say, they are irredeemable, but I was redeemable. Like, I was the one, the chosen, redeemable one. My life never got that bad, but theirs has. It's a radical generosity toward others that He wants, because we we were as irredeemable if there is such a thing as anyone else out there. And God, in His mercy and His grace, generously dumped it out on you. So now you take what you have and be generous with it. Which takes us to the first part, the first posture of hypocrisy. It's treating others in a way that you would never want to be treated. So let's do a quiz. Let's do a quiz. How many of you have ever said this? I want people to judge me. It feels so good. No? Okay. I feel like being condemned today. I love it. The way I know you love me is when you condemn me. What about this? When I mess up, I don't like being forgiven. I don't want your forgiveness. Said no one ever. So when we treat others this way, it is inconsistent. It's an inconsistent ethic. It's treating people the way that you would never want it to be treated. Never want to be treated. The posture of hypocrisy begins like that, but there is another layer to it. It goes beyond simply treating others in a way that you would never want to be treated. Verse 39, and this is where he starts telling a parable. It says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, blind leading the blind into a pit was a widespread, well-known proverb in the ancient world. Um, and the word pit was not simply a small ditch, so don't, don't think like, um, you know, the, the ditches along the side of the road that every now and then you see the car who caught the front right wheel and just kind of fell right in. Don't, don't think that. Think massive hole. Just a massive hole. And the word that he used for pit is used in the Old Testament in reference to God's judgment. And so his point here is that the blind leading the blind is a walk to disaster. Not simply any disaster, it's the spiritually blind leading the spiritually blind right toward God's judgment. But then he gives another picture and he says that the disciple or the student is not above his teacher. Not above his teacher. This was um, an oral culture in their day. There, there were no books. There was no Amazon to go online and buy your books from. You learned by spending your days with your teacher. It's the close relationship and probably the best modern comparison that we could bring it forward to is more of a child to a parent. And so this is, this is Jesus saying, hey, listen, seven-year-old, uh, you, you're not the cook that you think you are. Stay away from the stove. This is the 12-year-old saying, hey, I don't need driver's ed. I don't even need to be 16. I can drive now. This is Jesus saying, hey, listen, you're not ready for that. You're not above that. And here's the common thread between the blind leading the blind and the teacher or the student not being above the teacher is in both of them, it's somebody trying to be something that they are not. Trying to be something that they are not or trying to be more than they are. You see, here's the, the posture of hypocrisy is multifaceted. It treats others in a way that we don't want to be treated ourselves, and it always pretends to be more than we are or to be different than we are. And it leads to the effect of 
hypocrisy. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrites. You hypocrite. So there's a speck that's in your brother's eye, but you can't see it because you've got a log in your, uh, or, or, uh, but you've got a log in your own eye. I need to define these two, uh, the speck and the log. The speck was not um, dust that would fly up and land, and you, you know you have to itch it to get it out. And this was more of a reference to a splinter that would have to be removed through surgery, which in the ancient world, if you could imagine eye surgery, it was uh, pretty risky business, would lead to blindness often. But the log, this was not a branch cut off of a tree. This was the beam that would be the centerpiece to a house. It was a massive, massive log. And this is, remember, a visual that Jesus is using to make a point. And almost every commentator out there said that the audience listening to Jesus at this point, this would have been such a hyperbolic statement by him that they would have laughed. They would have thought, this is funny. But the point that Jesus is making, I think he thinks, is anything but funny. Anything but funny. He's saying you see the splinter in someone else, but you can't see the beam in your eye large enough to hold a house up. You can't see the beam that is in your eye that is large enough to hold a house up. You see, here is the effect of hypocrisy, and this is where it bubbles its way up to the surface and where it usually becomes more visible uh, to those around us. Here it is, that we're able to see the problems in everyone else's life, but we can't see the problems in our own. We are fully aware of everyone else's issues, but we have no awareness of our own. We, we can look around a room like this, or we can sit in a parish gathering, or we can be at work, and we can look around and go, man, if they were a little bit more like that, if they were a little less like that, without being aware that we are a little more like this and a little bit less like that. We can see the problems of everyone else, but we can't see the problems in our own Self. And so we say things like, man, they are just so lazy. They're just not whatever. Unaware that we are being as judgmental as you see the problems in others, but not in yourself. Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor in New York, looking at this, says, You're living a life that is spiritually inauthentic. You're living a life that is inauthentic. There's a disconnect from how you present to who you really are, that there is a lack of integrity. And by lack of integrity, I don't mean, uh, you know, that person is just, you know, they just have no integrity. What I mean is that there's an inconsistency in your life. There's a disconnect in your life. But he goes a little bit farther, and he says it's almost always a willful blindness. Point being, if you press the analogy large enough, if you've got a log in your eye, you have to be choosing not to see it. You've got to be willfully blind to the log that is in your eyes. It says it's almost always a willful blindness rooted in the desire to hide from ourself. So the reason I'm so critical of everyone around me is that I don't want to be critical of myself. If, if I'm not willfully blind to the problems of my own life, then I feel the pain that comes with those problems. And so it's a lot easier if I just can live my life critiquing those around me. That way I can deflect my pain onto them. Much easier to live that way. Jesus is making a hyperbolic analogy to show that we are willfully blind to the problems in our life. Living as if you have a tree in your eye. 
And so here's the question. Here's the question. What did Jesus do about that tree? Here's the answer. He climbed up one and he died on it. He climbed up on a log and was nailed to it. Listen, you might be willfully blind to yourself, but Jesus isn't. He knows you better than you know yourself. He looks into your eyes, sees you as you are, and loves you enough to say, I'm going to go die for you as you are. He's not afraid of your hypocrisies or your imperfections. He died to heal them. He looks at the log, the beam in your eye, and is willing enough to face it, willing enough to go to a tree and die for you. This is what he did. And this is why, why the New Testament calls hypocrisy a gospel issue. Literally, it's not in step with the gospel because Jesus died to heal the inconsistencies in our life. He died in a real sense to make us whole because at its root, the root of hypocrisy is this among us. The root is this, our ability to see everyone else's need for Jesus but our own. Our ability to live our life fully aware of your need for the redeeming grace of Jesus but not, not able to see my own. This is the root of it. Seeing the problems in others and your need for him but not my own. So here's the question then. How, how, what do we do about this? How do we come to see our own need? Or how do we apply the gospel to our log that's in our eye? How do we apply the gospel to our innate hypocrisies? How do we deal with it? Well, First Peter, a book that comes later in the New Testament, has an explicit statement. Among other things, it says, put away hypocrisy. It literally, get rid of hypocrisy. Get it out of your life. And in the context around that statement, gives us a clue as to how to do it. And so let's read 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is saying, put it away. Hey, the hypocrisy, the innate hypocrisies in you, put them away. Get rid of them. Get them out of your life. And, and here's how to do it. He gives two hints. They are not new. They are not novel. They are quite simple and they are quite, quite straightforward. They are the Word and the church. The Word and the church. Let's talk scriptures first. Um, recently, I read a story. I tried to find the quote. It was a book I read like a month ago, but I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't remember which one it was in, to be honest. Um, but it was a story about somebody who uh, had converted to Christianity through being given a Bible and through reading it. And, and his response was, was this, I finally, to reading the Bible, I finally found the book that knows me. I have been searching and searching and searching for a book that knew me, and I finally found the book that knew me. His point was, this book knows me better than I know myself. And when I read this book, I can't get away from who I really am. This book knows me better than I know myself, which is why developing habits of reading the Scriptures is so important. 
It's not simply so that you might learn the Bible for the sake of learning sake. It's so that you might get to know yourself. With the knowledge of God comes knowledge of self. And so you might grow in self-awareness, so you might become more and more aware of the log or the splinter that is in your eye so the Scriptures can expose you. And so if I could press something, if I could plead with something, we just started these. In addition to uh, just reading the Scriptures on your own, in addition to being a part of a parish and then studying the Scriptures with that parish and showing up for uh, Bible study with that parish, I want to I want to plug discipleship intensives that we just started this year and that we hope to expand in the years to come. I want to, I want to plug, if you're not in it, to, to join one next year. I know they're 40 weeks long this year. I, I don't know what we're going to do next year. I know that's intimidating. I, I, want to, I want to plead with you to not be afraid of the duration and the commitment level. Because if nothing else comes out of them, let me promise you this, what will come out of them is developing habits, habits of reading and praying the Scriptures that might last a lifetime. Open the Scriptures and read them. But it's not just the Bible. It's also the church. She says, love one another. Love one another. Listen, people who love you know you. If they don't know you because you're presenting a facade, an image, someone that you're not, they don't actually know you. Therefore, they love the version of you that you present, but not the real you. He says, love one another, which requires that we are known, which requires that we are not hiding in plain sight, that we are not showing up present, but not really present. It requires that we're taking the mask off around one another. But let me tell you what else it requires. It requires that we're actually physically present. It requires that we are not living the, uh, the average of 1.7 times a month when it comes to Sunday mornings. National average. National average of church attendance, 1.7 times a month. Listen, you can't show up 1.7 times a month and then show up to a parish gathering once or twice a month and then complain that nobody knows me. I'm not known here. Of course you're not known here. I don't feel connected here. Of course you don't feel connected here. You have to be present. I want to plead with you. Listen, I, I, I can look around the room and I, I, I know for some of us this is our first time here. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. I know it's scary to put two feet in. I want to plead with you to put two feet in. Some of us have been living on the edges for years around here. And it's because we know two feet in means mask comes down, mask comes down and that is frightening. Yes, it's frightening, and it's worth it. It is worth it. We have to be present, actually present and physically present. Because listen, not being here or hiding in plain sight, let me tell you what that does. It just fosters hypocrisy. It fosters the dichotomy. It fosters the I live one way here, one way here. And that is a problem for you. But it's not just a problem for you. It's also a problem for us. How do I know? Let's go back to Luke 6, finish our text. Verse 42. I'm going to read it again. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. This is what we haven't read yet. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take, the, uh, to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Listen, dealing with your hypocrisies, dealing with your hypocrisy, it matters for you, but it doesn't just matter for you. It also matters for us. God cares about the log that is in your eye, but He doesn't only care about the log that is in your eye. He cares about the speck that is in your brother's. 
and it was a log out of your eye so that you can help get the speck out of theirs. It matters for us. Jesus is building a church, not just a collection of individuals, and he wants a communal consistency. He wants a community that is authentic and honest in who we are, where we remove logs so we can help get specks out of each other's eye. He wants us marked by a self-awareness that is willing to say, I've got a log and I want the log gone. I've got a speck and I want the speck gone. And listen, there is specks and logs in all of us. There, there are no Houdinis when it comes to, to the effects of the fall on the world. Not one. Not one. Not a single one of us in this room, myself included. Paul, who wrote so much in the New Testament, you know what he called himself? Chief of sinners. You know what he's saying there? I get the biggest log in the room. Not one of us are Houdini when it comes to us. He's saying, and we need one another to get the specks out of our I. We need one another. And so we're left with this question. We're left with the question, do we want the mask off? Do we want to take the mask off? And listen, I, I, I am not trying to say all of us have the, the full mask on all the time, but if we could kind of imagine like the stick that comes up to the mask and like pieces of the mask here or a little piece over there, sliver up the middle, there's a portion of that mask on us. Do we want that portion gone? Do we want the entirety of the mask gone that we might live a fully honest life with one another? That we might be willing to say, listen, I, I know it's frightening. I, I know it's scary to step in and to be known at a level like I have never been known before that is frightening. I get that. But oh man, like is that not the life that you want? To be fully known? to know others like that? Do you not want that life? Do you not want the freedom of going, I don't have to carry a mask around anymore? Don't you want the freedom of that? Don't you want it? I do. I do. I want the pieces on my mask gone. This will be a lifelong communal project, but I want them gone. Jesus wants them gone enough that he climbed onto a log and he died for them. Jesus knows you well enough, better than you know yourself, and he knew your deepest need, and it was him on a log dying for your hypocrisies, dying for your inconsistencies, dying for mine. And he died so that slowly by slowly, little by little, week by week, that mask would come crumbling down. Do you want the mask off? I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son into the world when the fullness of time had come. Your son who knows us better than we know ourselves, your son who was willing to die for us as we are, not for the version that we present to others. Pray that we would take the mask off and by your mercy and by your grace that we would stop living by a script, that we would stop living life as actors, but we would just take the mask off and be willing to open ourselves up and be us. The full, true, and honest us, fully in need of your grace, fully in need of your sustaining mercy. Would you mark us as a community? Would you be a community who is known for that, known for our honesty, known for our transparency, known for our love for one another, known for being willing to say, I want the log out of my eye and I want the speck out of yours. It takes humility. It takes courage. 
Would you grant both? We're asking for it. In Christ's name, amen.